Who will I choose for my friends? Who will I go to for counsel? Who will I choose to love? Who will I choose to believe in? Our topic for today is how to help our children choose a palace instead of a haunted house. This is the theme of Proverbs chapter 9, and it will bring to a close our series on how to raise street-smart, godly kids. We've been learning about two pathways, two choices, and we've been talking about the responsibility that we have to make the right choice. You know, every one of us are making these choices day by day as we live. One pathway is a life of skillfulness. It's a life of blessing. It's a life that is long-lasting and productive. The other is a life that's filled with instant pleasure and unbelievable thrills and excitement. It can be filled with some of the highest pleasures, some of the most exhilarating pleasures that you could ever have. But then it turns into poison, deadly poison, and it murders us. Proverbs chapter 9, if you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9, finishes the introduction of the book of Proverbs, trying to whet our appetite to have the discipline to listen to the short, pithy, Solomonic Proverbs that follow in chapter 10 through the rest of the book. And we're going to close our brief survey of the book of Proverbs trying to deal with a question of how to be a wise parent and also an appeal to the young people to make the wise choices in life by finishing up that survey with chapter 9. We all need to ask ourselves, what kind of choices are we making? And so we begin with wisdom. That's one of the women that wants to get into my life. It says that wisdom has built her house. She's honed out her seven pillars. She prepared her meat and she's mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She has sent out her maidens and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are naive come in here, she says to those who lack heart or who lack common sense who lack judgment. Come eat, eat my food, and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave your naive ways, leave your open-minded, naive, simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. So we begin the passage with wisdom appealing to our young friend that we were introduced with several weeks ago, the naive fool. Remember him? Basic characteristic, he believes everything. It's one of the basic characteristics of the young is they haven't had a lot of experience in life, and so quite naturally, they're open to all different kinds of influences. This young, naive fool is appealed to by wisdom. In other words, as we begin our lives, there is a skillful, beautiful plan that is calling out to us. Part of that plan is communicated to us through our conscience. Our own conscience has a pretty good handle on what is right, not that it can't make mistakes, it's not infallible, it's not the inerrant word of God, but many times it is the voice of right deep within our heart that is appealing to us to choose the path of wisdom. But the book of Proverbs, as it begins here in chapter 9, to say that skillful living has built her house, she has hooned out her seven pillars to take some of the figure away. What wisdom is saying is that there is a place where there is a structured life. There is a place you can come where someone can teach you. There's a palace, there's a temple you can go to where you can learn the truth. Now, it's not a building. It's not a physical place. 
But this, this symbol of this beautifully constructed home that has seven pillars, which seven is a number in the scripture of perfection, so I believe that it's speaking of a, of a completeness, of a very perfect way of living. And what wisdom is saying is that you don't live in a universe where nobody really has the answers. One of the things in our society today is that it's an in thing academically, although rapidly it's becoming not nearly the in thing that it was as when I went into college. When I went into college in the 60s, the students decided they were going to run the schools. They decided that they were going to set up the curriculum. They decided that the teachers that had studied fields for 50 or 60 years didn't know anything more about it than they did. And the whole university scene got thrown very much into a tremendous crisis, a confusion. So much so that Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind from Chicago University, not exactly the seat of fundamental Christianity, calling for education to come back to mores, to come back to standards, to come back to, a, to an idea that there is a place where there's wisdom. I disagree with him on the place where he wants to go. Back to Plato, back to the great Greek philosophers like Aristotle, get back to the early founders of our nation, like the thinking of Rousseau and the thinking of Thomas Jefferson. What I want all of you young people and adults to realize is that we're all trying to get back. In fact, the year of the Constitution, the year of the Constitution reminds us about what we were founded upon and a place where we can go, where we can find something that's worth living for and worth dying for. What wisdom is saying in these verses is this. In God's holy scripture, not in Plato, not in Aristotle, not that you won't find some valid insights for life, but if you want to find a well-developed, skillful way to live, if you want to find a blueprint that's worth teaching, that's worth trying to get people to be committed to, the place to go is the house of wisdom as revealed in the Old Testament and then as preeminently revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who is skillful living, wisdom embodied. What I want all of you young people to realize is that everything isn't up for grabs. Life isn't just a big experiment. There's a place where you can go, there's a person you can go to that can help you to escape foolishness and help you to live wisely. And that's why wisdom presents herself as this beautiful woman who has built a house. Second of all, she's prepared a good meal for you. It talks about wisdom's hospitality in verse 2. She's prepared her meat and she's mixed her wine. She has also set her table. All the ladies in the group, if you're going to have a dinner party, know what it's like to get the right tablecloth out, to get the right china out, to get everything prepared. You do that for people that are special, people that you care about, people that you want to prepare a nice, hospitable fellowship meal for. Wisdom presents herself as a beautiful woman. She's built her home. There's a place where you can go where you can hear her voice. And she's prepared good food for you. She's mixed her wine, and wine in the Old Testament is not only a symbol of debauched drunkenness, as for example in Genesis 9, when Noah gets drunk and falls asleep in his tent, stark naked, and his son Ham comes in and laughs at him. 
Wine is not only presented as a very dangerous thing that can make you drunken and intoxicated, but it's also presented as something that can bring pleasure and happiness and joy. If you were Jews here today, you would understand what I was talking about because in your religious festivals, for example, on a Sabbath, the drink of wine as you began your Sabbath meal, not guzzling a whole bottle down, but taking just a taste of wine as you pass the cup around the table, your daddy would say, we thank the Lord for the blessings of the vine, and it would be a symbol of God's happiness and the satisfaction and the joy that can gladden our heart. And that's why the Psalms will talk about thanks to God for giving us wine which gladdens the heart of man. The daddy that's a Jewish man on the Sabbath would also take a loaf of bread and he would break that loaf of bread and he would give it to each member of the family. And the family would eat that bread and the daddy would say, thank you, Lord, for the gift of the land and for the fact that it's given us bread. In the context of Proverbs, these are symbols. This bread and this wine are symbols of the fact that wisdom has a good meal for you. Every one of you are relying upon something to sustain you. Every one of you are seeking something that can give you strength to make it through the day. The tendency deep in all of our hearts is that we tend to want to eat the wrong things. Now, we all laugh about that when we're trying to diet, but I'm not talking about physical food here because wisdom isn't really talking about literal bread and literal wine. She's talking about a meal that can sustain your inner core, can sustain your heart. When you're young people, when you're children, you move up into the teenage years, a lot of times you don't think that much about your heart. You just let your heart go. You look forward to a Friday night football game. You look forward to having a big time afterwards. You look forward on special occasions to be able to spend a real late night out cruising around. And that's what your heart says, man, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Some of you are more sophisticated. You say, man, what I'm really looking forward to is getting the right grades so I can go to the right school. And that's what motivates you. Some of you say, man, what feeds my soul is looking forward to my birthday, looking forward to Christmas. When you're little children, that can be the thing that sustains your soul. It's what gives meaning. It's what gets you up in the morning, gets you going. What wisdom is saying, I have the food that's a food that can sustain you throughout a lifetime. I want you to ask yourself, deep in your soul, are you eating what is satisfying? You know, as I work with people, I think that one of the most dominant things that I observe about them, and I observe this in myself, is many times that there's a hunger, there's a thirst, and Satan wants to take advantage of that hunger and of that thirst. You see, it's not well deep inside of us. We don't live in heaven yet. We still have an image of God within us that's been distorted. And some of you filled that void with athletics for a long time, but now that's all gone because you've gotten over the hill and that doesn't really sustain you anymore. Some of you really satisfied yourself. You ate deeply from climbing up the corporate ladder, but now that isn't really satisfying. And some of you are plunging into a real despondency. You're getting old and what you've been eating, what you've been fueling your life with, Understand what I'm talking about? What you've been fueling your life with is, is running out of satisfaction. And that's why the message of wisdom is so precious, because wisdom comes to us and says, listen, eat my bread and drink my wine. 
and it will bring a lasting, satisfying, slow-burning pleasure to your life, a fulfillment. It'll start to fill up that hollowness that's inside of you. I think in the ultimate scheme of things, as we put together the Holy Scriptures, I remind you of John chapter 6, as I think of someone who promises me bread and promises me wine. And I think of Jesus Christ saying in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me will never hunger and he will never thirst. He told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that out of her innermost being could flow rivers of living water. Jesus Christ is the only one who ultimately fulfills this invitation, an invitation to really feed you. Now, you might not understand that right now. And maybe you're going to have to go and experiment with a lot of other things. But I was praying early this morning that maybe some of you would listen very carefully to the fact that only the teaching of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament is part of that. Only his words, only his instruction, only his life, only an intimacy with him is really going to satisfy that yearning and that hollowness inside of you. That, that feeling that I'm hungry and that I want to eat bread and I want to drink something. And Satan's going to try to feed that hunger and feed that thirst with a whole lot of lousy bread. But only Jesus can give you the true bread. And so wisdom has prepared this beautiful meal, which in the book of Proverbs would include all the wisdom instruction that this book has to teach us. And then we have our invitation in verse 4. Let all who are naive come in here. She says to all those who lack judgment, come eat my food, drink the wine that I have mixed, abandon your naive ways and you will live. Walk in the way of making wise decisions. Every one of us needs to come to the place where we decide who we're going to listen to. When you're a teenager, you come up through and your parents really controlled your life pretty much. They knew where you were going to be and what you were going to be doing. And when you move up into your teenage years, you know, especially when you get your wheels, you can feel like, man, now I can do my own thing. And a lot of you have the idea, well, one of the amazing things about a 16 or 17-year-old is that sometimes they'll look at me and they'll say, I really know what I'm doing. I really know what life's about. I really know, you know, you, you as an adult, you act like I really don't know what's coming off. But I want you to know that I really do. I know what I want. I know what all of life is about. I know where I'm going. I know what I want to be and what I want to do. Man, I wish like crazy I could go back to the wisdom that I thought I had, the dimensions of the wisdom that I thought I had when I was 17 or 18. Because as I hear a young teenager look at me and say, I know what I want to do. I know what life is all about. I can make the right decisions. I'm really not in danger. My parents are all shook up, you know, when I go out late and they don't know exactly where I am. They think I'm going to get in some kinds of trouble. They think if I go into Dallas, you know, that, that I might get involved with the wrong woman. I might get involved with the wrong man. They think I might drink too much. Man, they don't trust me. And the whole idea is if I as a parent really trusted them, really loved them, man, I would recognize how strong and competent and independent they are. You know what's incredible about that? 
I don't trust myself. I wouldn't trust myself to split tonight going in North Dallas and go clubbing from one club to the next. I wouldn't trust myself to do that. I wouldn't trust myself to get with a bunch of guys and just start cruising around with nothing really literally to do, just kind of looking around, looking to have a good time and drink a little bit and then drink a little bit more. I wouldn't trust myself and say, oh, I can handle it. I can just drink one or two. You all laugh. You say, well, Dave, you never do that. You're the preacher. You're the reverend. But if anybody ought to have an inoculation against evil, man, I've got an ordination and a doctorate degree in theology. If anybody can handle it, I think I ought to be able to handle it. But I want to tell you from the depths of my heart, I wouldn't trust myself. And I want to go on record. I want every one of you to listen. I don't trust David. I don't trust myself. You know why I don't trust myself? Because I really know what's inside here. I know the passions that are deep in my heart. I know what's in my tank. I know the thoughts that I have. I know what life can do. I know the delicacy of maintaining a pure family. We all sit here today and we look at a family and we all say, isn't that nice? Isn't it wonderful? And that's, that's really what Christianity is about, and it is. Do you know how delicate it is to have a man and woman that live together for many years? We ought to know. Because all of you know families that haven't made it. All of you know kids that have chosen to live naively, that have chosen to live aimlessly, that haven't really committed themselves to wisdom. Sure, you know a lot of others that made the right choices, but if any church family ought to know that there's tremendous danger out there, we ought to know. So wisdom comes to me this morning and she comes to you this morning. She says, listen, you got to leave your open-minded ways. you got to humble yourself you got to open your heart to my teaching. Whether you have a doctorate degree in theology or whether you're just starting out in a Sunday school class, you got to open your heart and listen to what wisdom has to say. Now, there's two responses that you get when I teach like that. In fact, I am getting basically two responses even as I talk to you. One response isn't so good. It says in verse 7, whoever corrects a mocker invites an insult. One of the responses we get is this. Whoever corrects a mocker invites an insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incures abuse. Don't rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. You know, as you teach the word of God to people, you get two basic responses. One of the responses is a mocking. This Jesus stuff, man, that's a bunch of baloney. Some of you kids get that at school. Your friends tease you. They say, man, you're a Bible, to you know, a Bible to toddler. You're a Bible toter. You know, you go into the military when my dad went to the military and he came to know the Lord. Like the way he came to know the Lord is by throwing Bible, throwing shoes and stuff at a believer having his devotions. This believer would come to know the Lord and he, he would have his quiet time early in the morning and he'd read his Bible and all the guys in his barracks would throw shoes at him. They'd mock him. They'd, they'd insult him. My dad did that. My dad was the one that was mocking, was insulting, but the reality of this believer's steadfastness, not a holy Joe righteousness, not pretending he was better than anybody else, but just consistently being devoted to a life of wisdom and listening to the Word of God eventually got my dad's ear. But my dad was a mocker. 
I've shared with you, I've spoken at Word of Life like to 600 teenagers, a lot of them from in basketball camps, from the ghettos of Baltimore, New York. And those guys really mock you. Boy, when you start out, they'll stand up and cuss you and curse you and everything else. I've spoken in the public school. And all the stray kids sit relatively in the front, you know, and the monitors keep them under control. But there's always way in the back if there's not assigned, assigned seats. There's always in the back the guys that slouch and fold their arms like that. And they mock you. They speak under their breath. They don't listen to a thing that you're talking about. Mockers like to get up where they can be far away from the point of attack because then they can carry on their own conversation. They can do their own thing. You know, that used to really bother me. I, when that what used to happen, I mean, I used to feel like, Lord, what am I doing wrong? They don't seem to listen to what I say. How can I reach this guy? And it still bothers me, but the Holy Scriptures told me something. And that is, if you've got a mocking heart, if you've got a scoffing heart, I probably can't reach you. Now, that's not something for the scoffer to boast about. It's really very... Very sad. You see, if I can't reach you, the Holy Spirit can't use me to teach you. If your heart isn't saying, I want to learn, I want to hear what God's Word has to say. If your heart isn't doing that, and instead you're saying, oh man, I can hardly wait till this thing is over. My mother and dad are cramming this stuff down my throat. I can hardly wait till I can just get out and live for what I want to live for. Or if you're an adult, if your mind is saying, boy, you know, I saw that secretary at work and you know, maybe something can develop, all kinds of things. Or, or maybe you're going through business and you're really not with it. And in fact, maybe there's a real antagonism to the things of God. In fact, if you really want to see the scoffer really clear, listen to the gay lobby. Because homosexuality is, is one of the extreme pits of foolishness. In fact, one of the Broadway plays, Lakash de Foles, the cage of the fools, of the follies. A homosexual wrote that play, and he even called it that. He even knows that he's in this place of foolishness. And one night when the homosexuals outnumbered just about everybody in the audience, the unbelievable mockings, one congressman tried to talk about moral purity and living straight. And he got laughed right out of the whole audience. All you need to do in Congress is mention abstinence as one basic fundamental way to not get AIDS. And everyone laughs. I want you to listen for that in our society. In fact, somebody, one of the men shared with me this past week a great cartoon. It's got an old grandfather rocking in his rocking chair on a, on a front porch. This young guy comes out, and just so you'll understand the point, he, he has real long hair. Not that that necessarily would be a symbol of this, but the guy's got real long hair, and he, he's really bopping around, you know, and, and he comes to his grandfather and says, hey, you know, granddad, what did you do in your day against all these sexual diseases? What did you do in your day to be able to be free from contamination? You know, was it this technique or was it that technique? What did you do? And the old grandfather says, we used to try a wedding band. You know, that's an incredible long way that we've come. And all that I want to share with you is wisdom is crying out to us. We've talked a lot in this book about purity. And wisdom is crying out in young people and moms and dads. Wisdom is still saying, 
Live according to her standards. Live for what is right. Allow the Holy Spirit to control you so you can have power over all these passions within and it will protect you. Helping you to find this protection within. This is Dave Wurtzen and this is what Truth Encounter is all about. As we've been studying through the book of Proverbs and cutting a cross-section through all the many themes that it raises, my prayer is that you will heed the wisdom that you will not be drowned in the sea of moral relativism, that you will not believe the modern lies that everything is just up for grabs and the individual can experiment for themselves and decide for themselves the way they're going to live. I just recently had a young friend of mine, I was walking through pennies and suddenly I had a tap on my shoulder and one of my young friends said, hi Dave, and I was just kind of milling around through the men's department he said, he said, I have to buy a pair of shoes. I said, well, what for? Are you going to a wedding or something like that? He said, no, I have to go to a 20-year-old friend's funeral. And he looked down and then he said, my friend was shot by his girlfriend. Uh, he was living with an older woman. She was in her 30s. He was just in his 20s. She had a problem with drinking, and she'd already shot at him once. And rather than getting out of that house, that haunted house, this young man continued to stay involved in this lifestyle. And I couldn't help as my friend went on to the shoe department of pennies and, and got the shoes. I couldn't help but think of what Proverbs teaches young men about involvement with this kind of a foolish older woman, a woman that will use their virile sexuality and will use the pleasure that can come and all the excitement that can come in the pleasures of sin to destroy a young man's life. But this is a world of violence. And the ancient lessons of Proverbs, the Mrs. Robinson that's exposed in Proverbs 7, is a story that's acted out again and again and again. And I pray that the Lord's going to use these discussions on Truth Encounter to help many of you parents and many of you grandparents to help your grandchildren and your kids to turn away and in this age of moral relativity to know what's right and what is wrong. This entire series, Street Smart Godly Kids, is available to you for free download or streaming audio. Just go to truthencounter.com slash series or Truth Encounter on your iTunes app and look for Street Smart Godly Kids.